0: All right. Uh, This is the last part of this series that we've called One Another. Before we jump into that, I want to let you know, uh, next week, we're going to be talking about kind of vision casting around what we believe is next for us as a church, some next steps some new things, some dreams, some hopes, some desires. So uh, I want to invite you to come back next week. I actually want to invite you to come back every week because we're here every week. But next week especially, um, we're, gonna, we're just gonna be talking a little bit about where we believe that we're going um, as a church and how you can um, join us or how we can join each other in doing that. But uh, this uh, week is the last part of one another. So if this is your first time joining us, here in the room or uh, in a tandem venue or even online, if this is your first time or your first time in a long time, you're kind of coming in at the end of the movie. Um, And if you would like to know what happened at the beginning and the middle of the movie, you can find those first two installments on gracepointtopeka.org or our YouTube channel uh, or your favorite podcast app. We put those online for free for anybody forever. Uh, We hope it's a blessing, not just to those people who are a part of our church, um, but those who never set foot inside the doors um, of our church. We hope it's a blessing to them as well. Um, but this, um, this series has been all about the one another's in the New Testament. There's about 60 of them. We're only looking at three of them, so you're getting off easy. Um, but the one and are there are people, right? There are relationships in our lives, friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, um, people on the other side of your social media feed. There's people all around us that we are to one another, whether you like them or not, whether you want them or not, whether you tolerate them or not. I think we all want to learn how to one another, one another well. want to learn how to relate to one another well. And even if you don't, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what we're supposed to be known for. This is what we're supposed to be about as followers of Jesus. And not because I say so, but because our founder said so. Our leader said so. Our Lord said so when he said, love one another as I have loved you. By this, it's the mic drop moment. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. So this this one another thing was really, really important to Jesus which is why we believe it should be really, really important to us. And so we spent the last couple weeks engaging or maybe re-engaging for the very first time our one-another muscles. We talked about two practices so far. Uh, Number one, how we can encourage one another daily, not by sitting in rows, but by sitting in circles, in community, where we get to know people, where we get to know each other's stories, where we get to know each other's hang-ups and habits and all the stuff that we bring to biblical community. And then last week, we talked about how to live in harmony with one another, not when everything's great, because it's easy to live in harmony when everything's great. How to live in harmony with one another whenever there's conflict, whenever you feel like you want to get back at somebody for something they did to you. How do we live in harmony with each other? And today, we're going to look at the third, one, another, and here's where we're going to start. According to the dictionary, a narrative... Whoops, too far. Our narrative is a story that connects and explains a set of events or experiences. Did you know your brain is hardwired to form narratives? I think, I think God actually designed you to form narratives. I am no neurologist, but I did stay at a Holiday and Express last night. No, I have... I have read enough and I've watched enough TED Talks about this and I've lived long enough to know that our brains are constantly looking for ways to save energy. Your brain is constantly looking for ways to make a mental or or to save mental calories. And again, I think it's part of the way God designed us. Our brains, um, like even right now, you're trying to predict the outcome of the message, some of you, the rest of you are just asleep. You're going to wake up here in a little bit, okay? Our brains are constantly trying to predict what's going to happen next. We learn from those experiences, and all of that data gets stored in our brain so we don't have to relearn that next time. Your brain is, is constantly detecting and learning patterns, cause and effect, Cue and conclusion, and you're storing all of that for future use, so you don't have to relearn that every single time. Um, those are functions of our brains, and that's actually where assumptions come from. Right? This is where you go, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I've I've seen this before. Ah, I've heard, I've had a conversation like this before. Yeah, I've met somebody like that before. I know exactly what they're like. It's where our assumptions come for. It's why you like cute, cuddly dogs, but the bigger, slobbier, meaner ones, you have a different narrative for. It's, it's why there are some foods that make your mouth water just hearing about them, and other foods engage your gag reflex. You have a narrative about those different types of foods. It's how every single one of us make decisions almost in a millisecond about a movie preview or the first part of a song or um, if you're shopping for a house, you walk through the house one time, within the first seven to 10 seconds, you have a pretty good idea if you wanted it or not. You walk into a store and you see everything that they have uh, for sale and you have a pretty good idea. I don't want that and I want that, I don't want that. You, you have these, these assumptions. You have these things. Your brain has already built a narrative and it helps you take a shortcut, which is massively helpful in day-to-day life. Your routines, your habits, the things that you just do, like, like those of you who have driven for longer than two or three years, you don't even think about it anymore. Some of you need to think about it a little bit more, <laughs> right? But those are, those are not the only things, the, the routines, the habits, those aren't the only things that we develop ha- narratives for. And you know this. There there are other things. We also form narratives about people. We form narratives about people, just like dogs and movies and music. Our brains naturally create shortcuts for understanding people. We just naturally, naturally do this. Have you noticed this? Um, It's like we have um, a stack of cue cards in our brains with talking points about the kind of people we've observed in life. And, and, and when one of those people comes along, we pull out the cue card. We go, oh, yeah, I know exactly what this person is like. I, I know who I'm talking to, and I know exactly how they're going to respond. I know their story. And, and you, you know this, but let me just give you a couple examples. Um, personality tests. We love personality tests. Um, the DISC profile, Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram. The Enneagram is the the personality test that gives you a number for your personality. And those of you who know what the numbers stand for, you hear somebody saying, well, I'm a one, or I'm a four, or I'm a five, or I'm a nine. And you go, yeah, you are. You're a nine, right? Look at you being all nine-ish right now, right? (laughs) Our brains love personality tests because it helps us understand each other so much better. Uh, We do this with where people are from, right? Um, If someone, you meet someone for the first time and they say, I'm from Lawrence, you pull out the Lawrence card. Where's my Lawrence card? There's my Lawrence card. Yep, they like KU basketball, they eat on Mass Street every night, and they greet everyone they know with rock chalk. That's people (laughs) from Lawrence, right? People from Manhattan, there's a different card, there's a different person. You say, I'm from Rossville. there's a different person there. Well, I'm from Topeka. Where's that? You know, it's like a different person. You have, these, you have these stacks in your brain that help you understand who people are. We do this with really shallow things like clothes and cars and houses. They're sports teams. their preferences. You hear somebody say, my favorite restaurant is, and you automatically fill in the blank for the type of person they are. We only need a few data points and and we fill in the rest of their story. But we do this with far deeper things as well. We do this with skin color. We do this with gender. We do this with political party. We do this with religious beliefs. We do this with relationship status, sexual orientation. Just give me one or two of those data points. And I'll I'll have you pegged. I know exactly where to take it from there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're like. I know who you are. I know what you think. I know what you think about me. So I can think no more. I've got you. That's a narrative. That's a narrative. We have a natural inclination and a practiced habit of developing narratives about one another. And I don't know if I have ever seen a time in my life where this is happening more than it's happening right now. It, it's, it's our narratives about one another, they're out of control. And part of that, like I understand that. When you look at the world, when you look at what's happened over the last few years, but, but we're forming entire storylines about people based on a few data points. And within a few seconds of even knowing them, like a few flicks of our thumb, and yeah, they're, they're with them. They're on, they're on the other team. They're, are they a good person? Or are they just, they're just poor, misguided soul, right? We spent the last couple of years developing, even entrenching the habit of reducing people to this. Because of our narratives. And I think we all know that's a problem or at least it's causing a problem because when we do it with food or, or dogs or music, it's not that big of a deal. But when it comes to deeper issues, when it comes to relational issues, that tendency for our brain to form narratives, I think it's hurting more, way more than it's helping. It's hurting more than it's helping. A narrative does two dangerous and destructive things with people. Number one, a narrative always simplifies the complicated. It always simplifies the complicated. Because when you, when you reduce another human being to a three-by-five card, you're reducing a very complicated human being, their life, their personality, their belief system, their hopes, their dreams, their family, their hurts, their struggles. That can't be, like, that can't be simplified to a three-by-five card. In, in other words, the person that you have created doesn't exist. That person doesn't exist that you've created. And, and you, you might get a few things right. You might get a few data points right. But we're taking incredibly complex human beings with incredibly complex background, story, worldview, and reducing them to a few talking points. And come on, let's just talk about, let's, let's be adults here. We're fine doing that to other people. But when somebody does that to me, it is on like Donkey Kong if you do that, right? Don't you dare reduce me. Don't you dare take my complex story just because I wore a picnic tablecloth as a shirt today, right? (laughs) Don't you dare. Everybody was thinking it, we might as well just say it, okay? Come on, when when somebody assumes something about you without even getting to know you, how does that make you feel? Don't you feel terrible? Well, don't you think other people feel the same way when you do it to them? (laughs) We can't. Our narratives simplify the complicated. The other dangerous and destructive thing that a narrative does with another, it almost always permits the impermissible almost always permits them. It gives us permission to act in ways that we wouldn't normally act. So let me just give you one example from my own life. Um, and this is just confession time from Pastor Tim, okay? A few years ago, our doorbell rang on a random Saturday and it was the Jehovah's Witnesses canvassing our neighborhood. And Jana actually answered the door um, and started talking to them. I was downstairs in the basement. I don't know what I was doing. Um, but And I don't, I don't remember if there was something going on that I was already cranky, but I was cranky, okay? I don't know if they woke me up from a nap or whatever, but my brain had a narrative already built about Jehovah's Witnesses, and here's how it went. They obviously don't have anything better to do on a Saturday. Um, Why can't they leave us alone? Because it wasn't the first time, right? Who still goes door to door? All this stuff that I'm, I'm just listing all of these things. And so I go upstairs, and I interrupt the conversation that they're having with Jana. I tell them we're not interested, and I basically shut the door in their face. Not my best moment. Not my proudest moment. Now, if you would have asked me earlier in the day, Pastor Tim, if someone comes to your door today, do you think you should be rude and angry and shut the door in their face? I would have said, no, absolutely not. I hate being treated like that. Why would I treat somebody else like that? But my narrative allowed me to do something that I would never normally do. It permitted the impermissible. It's what narratives do. They give us permission to exempt someone from the love one another list. They give us permission to disrespect, to insult to ignore, to exclude, to mock, to deride, to devalue, abandon, neglect, attack, rob, excommunicate, disqualify, pass over, slander, vilify. And if you read history, it gives us permission to start war. This is what narratives do to families. This is what narratives do to friends, to coworkers. It's what it's doing to churches. And communities, it's what narratives are doing to our country. It's what narratives do. We're reducing people to a card, putting them in categories, and in the process, we're devaluing them. And every single one of us, the pastor included, has been the victim and the perpetrator of one of those words on the screen. So I just think we need to wake up to the fact that we have a narrative problem. We have a narrative problem. And if you'll allow me, shocker, I know, I'd like to suggest an alternative. I'd like to suggest a different way, an an alternative modeled by Jesus that we can start doing right now, today. It's a practice you can teach your kids. It's a practice if if you're a business owner, you can teach this to your employees. It's a practice that you can easily implement that has the potential to break the narratives in our culture and release something far more healthy and far more glorifying to God, which should be our aim. And if you're a Jesus follower, this is doubly important because as long as we join in with our culture... As long as we join in with where our brains take us in this narrative-forming habit, we will never be known for what our Savior wants us to be known for. It's impossible. It's impossible to love one another the way Jesus has loved us while having a narrative-driven approach to the people in our lives. I just think it's impossible. So just for a moment... I would like to point you to how Jesus is described in the gospel narratives. Even a casual reader of the gospels will quickly see Jesus had a very peculiar habit. It was a habit that made him famous in some circles and infamous in other circles. It was a a narrative-breaking habit. So a couple examples. Um, You've heard the story of Zacchaeus, right? Many of you know the story of Zacchaeus. If you grew up in church, you know the story of Zacchaeus. You might even know his song. He has a song right? Zacchaeus is a tax collector, a Jew that worked for Rome. So not only was he a traitor, he was lining his pockets by overcharging his own people. And one day, Jesus walks into his hometown and Zac wants to see what all the buzz is about. So he climbs up in the tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And every single person that knew Zacchaeus in Jericho knew the narrative. They could, they could have pulled out the card and read it verbatim. Here it is. Zacchaeus is a traitor. He's no character, no soul, no conscience. He's going to die clutching the money. He's extorted from us because we're Jews. We're chosen, righteous people of God, and we despise people like him. And here comes Jesus. He's a holy. He's a righteous man. And, and if Zacchaeus even gives him so much of a peep, Jesus is going to tell him in no uncertain terms, he has no part with us, no part with God, and the only thing he has come in his way is judgment. That's on the Zacchaeus card. That's who he is. (laughs) And before they even realize what happens, Jesus comes by this tree that he's in. He looks up. Zacchaeus, would you come down immediately? Because I need to go to your house today. that that's that's not on my card jesus like that's not your line that's that's a sign of friendship that's a sign of acceptance luke tells us that there were actually those in the crowd that muttered it, it, it seemed like everybody knew the narrative except jesus have you thought about this before Jesus' response to Zacchaeus not only changed Zacchaeus's life, Jesus' response to Zacchaeus changed the people who he had cheated. He gave back. He gave it back, and if I, if I rob anybody, else, I'll pay him four times. It didn't just change Zacchaeus's life, it changed an entire community's life. It changed some of the lives of the people that were muttering because he responded not to not to a narrative, to something else. What about the woman caught in adultery? Literally caught in the act. Dragged out into the street. They're preparing to stone her, and Jesus comes by. It's another situation in which everybody knew the narrative. Anybody could have pulled out the card, read it to you, this woman's a sinner, she deserves what's coming. These religious leaders are going to do the right thing. This is what the law says. We can't tolerate this kind of behavior, and Jesus is a religious leader. He agrees with the law, so surely he'll agree with us. And before they could get through their narrative, Jesus kneels down and starts writing in the dirt. I would love, that's one of the questions I'm going to ask him when I see him face to face. What were you writing in the dirt that day? I would love to know what he was writing in the dirt. And then he stands up and his famous reply, woman, or no, no, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, everybody in the audience is going, what? That?" That's not your line. That's not a part of the narrative. Jesus, you heard what she did. You know the law. There's no thinking required here. It's cut and dry. But that's how he responded. That's how he responded. And then one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they leave until it's just the two of them. And Jesus says, woman, does no one condemn you? No? No? Well, neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. Everyone knew the narrative, except Jesus. And that's just two stories. We, we could talk about the, the man with leprosy who Jesus should have sent away from his presence but actually laid his hands on him and healed him. We could talk about the Roman centurion whom Jesus should have hated as a soldier of Rome but instead healed a member of his household. We could talk about the prostitute. Jesus should have kicked out of the house and never allowed to touch him, but instead he allowed her to wash his feet. (laughs) There's just story after story after story where everybody in in, in the room, everybody around knew the, the narrative of each of those situations, except for Jesus. Or maybe he wasn't interested in their narrative. Maybe he was interested in something else. Maybe Jesus saw people differently. Maybe he saw them like a shepherd sees his sheep. Right? We're, often, we're often told that, that Jesus is the good shepherd who knows his sheep. A good shepherd knows not just about his, each individual sheep. He knows the sheep's name. He knows there's a story to each sheep. So this, this one, this sheep right here, this name. his name's Q-Tip. And got the floppy little ear, really skittish whenever we go out in public. This one over here, this is Fluffball. Um, his leg is a little gimpy because of a wolf attack. It's a crazy story. I'll tell you about it one day. This one, this one right here is Chops because we almost ate her one night. But we're not going to eat you anymore, are we? No, we're not. Right? A good shepherd knows the sheep. Which is why, when one wanders off, he leaves the 99 behind. Because it's not just a sheep, there's a story, there's a name, there's a history behind it. Do you know why Jesus treats people differently? Because he sees people differently. He doesn't see a narrative, he sees a name. Did you know Jesus doesn't see your narrative? He sees your name. Did you, did you know that, that he knows why you're so quirky? He knows what brings you to life. He knows all the ways you're beautiful, all the ways you're broken. He, ha- he, he has the, the numbers of your hair numbered. He knew you in your mother's womb. And you're fearfully and wonderfully made Jesus knew you before you were ever even born. The same is true of everybody you know. They're not just narratives. They're not just narratives to Jesus. They're names. They're candidates for the mind-blowing, history-changing, eternity-giving grace of God. That's what Jesus sees. And when we see people the way Jesus sees people, come on, when we see people, the way Jesus sees people, we'll treat them. The way Jesus treats them. It's as simple as taking our narratives and trading them in for names. And if we do, when we do, it tends to keep us from simplifying the complicated and permitting the impermissible. It tends to keep us from doing that. So if you're up for it, I'd just like for you to pick a person in your life or a group of people in your life for whom you've created a narrative. Or maybe you've bought a narrative that our culture has sold you. And to start to break apart the narrative that you have about them and trade it in for their name. It's, it, it's, it's as practical starting today, in my humble opinion, if you wanna start seeing people the way Jesus sees them, get to know someone's story. Just get to know someone's story because the moment you hear someone's story is the moment it stops being simple, right? It's it's the moment we stop permitting the impermissible. It's the moment we stop being short and rude when somebody comes to the door on a random Saturday. It's the moment we start thinking for ourselves instead of buying all of the narratives our culture is selling us. Identify someone. Identify some someones about whom you formed a narrative And just get to know their story. Ask them who they are. Ask them why they think the way they think. Ask them why they believe the way that they believe. It doesn't mean you're going to walk away agreeing with everything that they believe. But at least be open to the complexity that exists in their life, just like you want somebody to be open to the complexity that exists in yours. At least be open to that. Let's let's just stop reducing people to that. Maybe we start there. We just stop doing this. We're people who get to know each other, people who get to know each other's stories of all the one another's in our lives. And when we do, if we do, we will increasingly find ourselves thinking and saying, I know the narrative, (laughs) but it's not quite matching up with the name I've gotten to know. Like, I I know that, that it should be as simple as how they're making it sound. But now that I've gotten to know them, it doesn't seem as simple anymore. And I'm having a really hard time treating them the way that I used to treat them. Because you've gotten to know their name. Paul, um, the Apostle Paul, says this so much better than I have, so I'm sorry for wasting 25 minutes of your life. Um, but here, here's what he says. This is Romans 15. He says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Paul wanted the church in Rome to, to see, to think about, to treat one another the way Jesus saw and thought about and treated them. Now, what was Jesus' attitude? Look at Philippians 2. Jesus didn't see narratives. He saw names. He humbled himself. He saw individuals with complex stories and experiences and hopes and dreams. Paul says, have the same attitude of mind towards each other that Jesus had towards you. Why? Don't miss this. So that with one mind and one voice, You may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember John 17, Jesus prayed for us to be one. Prayed for us to be one. He commanded us to love one another so that the world would know that God sent him. It's our distinctive as Christians. This is how the world will know. It's how the world will glorify God. When we one another, one another. And here it is. Here's what I came to say today. Here's what I think Paul is trying to say in this. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you. Accept one another. Just as Christ accepted you, accept one another. Not so everybody can get along. We can hold hands and sing kubaya, and we'll never have any conflict whatsoever. No, no. He actually wants us to do that so that in order to bring praise to God. He wants us to accept one another as Christ has accepted us, so God will be praised. It's actually way bigger than you. (laughs) It's actually way bigger than me. It's way bigger than anything we do relationally. It's, It's a way to praise God. Church, it's really hard Really hard to accept someone when you don't know their story. And it's really difficult to minimize someone to a three-by-five card when you do. Its Really, really difficult. Accept one another. Just as Christ accepted you, you can choose whether or not you accept Jesus. I believe you have free will to choose that. But we don't get to choose what accepting others like Jesus looks like because he already made that too clear. Paul made it too clear. Peter made it too clear. James made it too clear. The early church made it too clear. The church throughout history has made it too clear. And now it's our turn. It's our turn to accept one another the way Jesus has accepted us. So how do you see people How do you see people? And with whom have you settled for a narrative? Would you be willing to get to know their story? Would you be willing to accept them, that person that you're thinking about right now, that group of people you've thought about for the last 25, 30 minutes? Would you be willing to accept them the way Jesus has accepted you here's the deal. Jesus isn't waiting on us to do this. He's actively doing this right now. He's actively tuned in to the story of all eight billion people on this globe. He is already actively on mission doing this. He's just inviting you to join him. He's just inviting you to stop being a passive observer and be an active participant. Maybe another way to say it, do you want to mutter or do you want to matter? I know our brains are set up to do this. My brain is set up to do this. I love habits. I love processes. I love equations, even though I'm terrible at math. I love things that make sense. And and our brains are formed this way. Our culture tempts us to do this. I know it's difficult to get outside of that. So maybe, this is the last thing I'll give you, maybe the place to start is to simply pray, is to simply ask God, God, help me see others the way you see them so that I can treat others the way you treat them. Here it is. Let's throw it up on the screen. God, help me see others the way you see them, so I can treat others the way you treat them, the way you've treated me. Maybe that's, maybe that's the first step, is, is to pray that prayer. And I'm gonna tell you right now, I was reminded this week, that is a dangerous, dangerous prayer, <laughs> because God will answer it. And it'll start messing with you. I've experienced this. Some of you have experienced this. It's a dangerous prayer because God will answer this. He will start to give you eyes like Jesus so you can start learning stories like Jesus. He'll start giving you a heart like Jesus, the attitude of Jesus, so you stop simplifying the complicated and permitting the impermissible. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's why so few people actually want to pray it. Maybe that's why so few people actually want to do this. Because we would rather view people the way that we view them. Let's stop simplifying the complicated and permitting the impermissible. Let's break through. Let's give up our narratives for something better. For something more glorifying to God. And something better when it comes to one anothering one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's live in harmony with one another. Let's accept one another. And then see what God does as we do that. Let me pray for you. And then I got one more thing. Father in heaven, this is just a whole lot easier for me to sit up here and say than it is for me to walk out these doors and do. And so my, my prayer is very simple. For me, for those who honestly want to do this, that God, you would help us, you would open our eyes, you would open up our hearts to see the people around us from those who are closest to us to the different circles in our lives. Would you help us to see them the way you see them? And then position ourselves to treat them the way that you have treated them. God, this is not for our own good. This is not for our own glory, but for yours. That our obedience would lead to your glory, not our own. That our obedience would lead to goodness, to fruit that lasts. Jesus, help us with this. Jesus, if nobody else does it, There's nobody else would you help us to accept one another just as you have accepted us through Christ. And I ask it in his name. I ask it in Jesus' name.